This morning's from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 to 31. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are to you take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Salabat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favour, my God. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks for bringing that reading. Well, we do continue and we uh, actually bring to a close our eight-week series in Ezra and Nehemiah today. And um, today as we begin, 
Oh, the slide's aren't up there. Oh, that's a shame. They're in the media share folder. They just need to be dragged and dropped across. Uh, Lois, would you possibly be able to help with uh, Casey for those slides? <laughs> Thanks, Lois. Uh, that's okay. I don't need the slides to start. But I do want to start today by talking about uh, preventative laws. These are laws that are designed to prevent further harm. You'd be familiar with some of these laws. So one of the examples of preventative laws are rules about guns, for example. Strict rules in Australia, as you're probably aware, licenses involved, background checks, storage rules, some weapons are just illegal in Australia. And the case for this, the case for this is that if, if gun access is limited, if access to weapons is limited, people with certain intents wouldn't be able to kill as many people as possible. This is a law designed to reduce harm, to prevent and reduce harm. There's other preventative laws too that you'll be familiar with. A lot of our driving laws are preventative too, designed to reduce further harm. Rules like drink driving or using your phone while driving or keeping to the speed limit, for example, designed to reduce the risk of further harm or damage. There are preventative laws for churches too. Some of you will be familiar with the Safe Church scheme um, that we're part of. We have a, a Safe Church manual, a code of conduct. All our volunteers who work with children have working with children checks. They do training as well. Policies put in place to minimise risk of harm. And there's also preventative laws we put in place for ourselves. For example, I have friends who have had issues with alcoholism in the past. And they have then made a conviction and a law not to drink at all because they know it keeps them off any slippery slope that might lead them into misuse. All sorts of preventative laws in our world. Now, there's an argument against preventative laws too. The argument is that they don't really stop people who are intent on doing harm. That you know, If someone wanted to do a, a horrific mass shooting or something, they'll find a gun somewhere and they'll do it regardless of any laws that are in place. If people want to cause trouble in churches, the argument goes, they'll find a way in, regardless of any systems that you have in place. And there's a kind of, almost a kind of Christian logic as well to this too, because we know that we and, and all people have uh, sinful tendencies, don't we? We have tendencies to disobey God and to, to hurt other people. We know that sin and, and ignoring God, it's a heart problem. It's not just a behaviour problem, it's deeper. It's not just an issue of access or, or circumstances, it's, it's something that's really deep. We know that sin and its issues can't be sort of fixed, even with very good legislation or, or wise practices. It's a good question then, isn't it? Is it good to have preventative laws? Does it make sense? Or even what's the value of them in the face of kind of persistent sin and deep heart problems? I want us to consider today's passage with this question in mind. We'll have a look. At, today we're looking at three chapters of Nehemiah, chapters 11 to 13, the final three chapters of the book. And I'm going to summarize the first two chapters pretty quickly and then slow down on that last section. So chapter 11 begins with some lists. If you're looking at chapters 11 to 13, this is possibly where you will struggle in your reading. If This week, I'm suspecting, I'll go out on a limb there, uh, especially with pronunciation. But there's a list of everyone who's going to live in the capital, Jerusalem. For whatever reason, it seems that a lot of the exiles who had come back with Nehemiah and the others, they belonged to the regional towns 
of Judah. And they'd settled in their towns. It seems like for whatever reason, very few of them were actually from the capital, from Jerusalem. Once they returned, they'd come and go from the capital to their towns, often for the big projects, building the walls, big dedication ceremonies. But now that things have been completed, the question is, where will the people settle? Well, the leaders, the people, they settle in the capital, but they also want to make sure the capital isn't too empty. Uh, And so they make a decision. They, They choose people at random to also live in the capital, people who didn't come from the capital, to settle there. One in ten of the residents of Judah... Uh, by lot, by chance, are selected to live in the capital. The other nine out of ten, they can go back to their hometowns of, of Bethlehem and Mizpah and wherever it is. But chapter 11 records all those who settle in Jerusalem. It's a bit like an honour roll. These people were making a sacrifice to live in the capital rather than their hometowns, not by choice, but by selection. And then in chapter 11, there's other lists too. As you read through, there's, there's a list of where other people live, people who do settle in the towns. There's lists of all the priests and Levites who have come back from exile. Part of the point of this list is to respect and honour those who made the move to Jerusalem, but it's also to show the community is now settled. For most of Ezra and Nehemiah, there was change, there were big projects happening. There's a settledness now to God's people in the land as we come to the close of Nehemiah. Then halfway through chapter 12, we've had a lot of lists, the content shifts and we have a description of the dedication ceremony of the walls which have been completed. Uh, it's an elaborate ceremony, it would have been a fantastic festival to be at, I think there's musicians involved, there's kind of these two big choirs that go around the walls, they meet up and then they all finish in the temple together and there's more singing and, and sacrifices and there's a massive emphasis on joy. Let me read this wonderful verse about how joyful they were. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now, I'm no author, but if I was writing a book like Nehemiah, I would think, what a great place to finish. What a wonderful place to tie it all up. People have settled, walls have been dedicated, and they celebrated, and the the sound went out around, around the surrounding countryside praising God with great joy. But it's not the end of the book. The book goes on. There's still a chapter or so to go. And this is where I want to focus because this isn't a token kind of epilogue that um, Nehemiah sort of tacks on the end here. For him, this is important stuff. It's pretty heavy, but it's important. And I want to look at this in a little bit more detail. The last chapter of Nehemiah shows the sinful tendencies of the people that Nehemiah discovers as he's there as in his role as governor of this newly resettled capital. And there's kind of these three big areas where the people are falling short, where they're letting God down. The first is lack of upkeep of the temple, including failing to provide for the Levites, the people who work at the temple. I'll read this. There's a couple of sections here. Let me read these verses. This is the start of chapter 13. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms in the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oils prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Now, some of you might have alarm bells gone off. One of those names was Tobiah. He was a troublemaker from previous chapters. He was really 
causing Nehemiah a lot of grief, possibly the former mayor of Jerusalem, who wasn't an Israelite, but he'd, he'd had some power there, and he'd just been causing all sorts of trouble as Nehemiah was trying to get the walls built. Well, it turns out that Eliashib, who's the priest, he was friends with this Tobiah, and Eliashib was in charge of the storerooms, where all the grain and offerings are meant to be kept for all sorts of purposes. One of them is to, to care for widows and orphans in the city, also to give food to the Levites so they can stay in the city and work on the temple. But for whatever reason, Eliashib cleared out that room and made it like a little sort of city apartment for his friend Tobiah, um, who then would just live there and have all his own things there. It was quite bizarre. But what it meant is that the temple, the, the, the supplies for the temple weren't stored there. And so the Levites, who are needed to serve at the temple, they weren't being provided for. And so understandably, a lot of them went back to their own hometowns so they could work the land and provide for their families and themselves, which means the temple was neglected. It's not a great situation. And the thing that makes it worse, and this is the thing that really caught me out, is they really should have known better. See, in last week's section, you might remember this from last week, in chapter 10, the people had just heard Ezra read the law and they made this covenant to be faithful. There was this wonderful moment of, of unity and focus. A solemn agreement was made to follow God. And this is what it said. These are the people here. These are the people making this agreement in front of the Lord, in front of all the elders. They agree to this. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, the first of all our trees and all of our new wine and olive oil, and we'll bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it's the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Seems like pretty hollow words now. They just affirm this, just reminded themselves of the reason for this, the importance of this. And already the house of God is in neglect. The second sin, the second downfalling that Nehemiah flags is working on the Sabbath. And we heard this bit read a moment ago. We read this. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Not working on the Sabbath was one of those fundamental laws of God's people to set them apart from the nations. It was the fourth one of the Ten Commandments that Moses read out from God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor any male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And yet here the people are, working and trading and happily going about everyday business on the Sabbath day. And again, and Again, it might sound almost ridiculous, but they just reaffirmed the Sabbath in that covenant, that chapter 10 covenant we saw. This is the bit about the Sabbath. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy for them on the Sabbath or any holy day. It's, all, it's almost getting embarrassing, isn't it? Just how sort of blatant their forgetfulness of what they just signed up for. 
And finally, there's the sin of foreign marriages. We read this. This is the last, the last section of chapter 13. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, you might, you might even be thinking, didn't we cover this? Wasn't this? Didn't we cover this a few weeks ago? Yeah, we did. We did. We covered it, uh, the last message in the book of Ezra. This is before Nehemiah. This is Ezra, the previous leader of God's people. At least 15, maybe 20 years before. And it was dealt with at length. We, we took, looked at it at length. We looked at the issue of foreign marriages then, um, how that's a different situation for us today. And again, in Nehemiah 10, in that covenant of the people that they made just before Nehemiah 13, we read this. The people promise. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. And yet again, the people are marrying women from surrounding towns, falling into old practices that they committed not to doing. What's going on? What is up with the people? Why does this keep happening? Why do we? Three times we see this, don't we? Falling into practices, old habits, and habits that they particularly said, we're not going to do that one anymore. We're going to sign up and say, no more of that, please. Here we are. It's, uh, it sort of almost seems pathetic, really. But I wonder if this resonates maybe with you at some level. It certainly resonates with me. I wonder if there's something, something in your life, maybe a practice or a pattern of thought or a way of behaving that you actually struggle to shake. I know that's the case for myself. It might be the way you speak about some people or even think about some people. It could be something like judgmentalism or, or gossip or unloving language. It could be a persistent sexual sin like use of pornography. It could be a financial issue like greed. It's going to be something different for each of us, I, I imagine. But there's likely to be something that we each find hard to stop, to stop completely. Something where we know in our hearts that's not how God calls us to live or to think or to act. Something that we want to stop as well. There's a deep desire to change, to follow God in that area. But it's hard. It's just hard. And I know this feeling. I know this rhythm, this pattern for myself. It feels like maybe we're enslaved What's the way forward? Can there be a way to end this kind of thing, persistence in? Is change possible? Well, let's have a look at what Nehemiah does first. This whole section of Nehemiah is roughly shaped that he shows the problem and then he shows what he does. He identifies a simple practice and then he looks at how we deal with it. So when it comes to the, the storeroom issue and the upkeep of the temple, this is what we see. Nehemiah says, I was greatly displeased. And threw all Tobias' household goods out of the room. I, I gave orders to purify the rooms. I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and incense. I rebuked the officials. I asked them, why is the house of God in neglect? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms. And made Hanan son of Zakur, the son of Mattani, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Leites. Nehemiah comes in, he clears out shop, rebukes the officials, restocks those storerooms, 
And he gets new staff in as well. He puts new officials in charge, people who are trustworthy. He takes this practical action to deal with it. What about working on the Sabbath? This is the second issue. This is what Nehemiah does. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Again, he tells the nobles, he tells them off for what they've done, and he makes this new practice of locking the gates on the Sabbath day so traders could not come and go. He takes this practical issue. And on the third issue of foreign marriages, I won't read the whole response. Um, We heard it before from Mark, but he takes some pretty drastic action, including some slightly violent action. We won't get into the detail of um, the pulling of the hair out. But once again, he's trying to deal directly with this situation. He's trying to nip it in the bud with a pretty stinging rebuke uh, to those involved. Nehemiah is not a slouch, is he? He's not a lazy gentleman. He's also not a man of despair. He's a man of action, and he responds each time to what the people are up to. And I think particularly maybe with the Sabbath and the, the, the Levite provision, he puts these structures in place. He sets things up to try and minimize the harm that can keep going. There's no hard and fast rule that city gates should be closed always on the Sabbath. He decides, no, we've got to do this. We've got to put this rule in place because it's going to stop the trading. That's what we need to do. He puts key trustworthy officials in charge of the storerooms. He sets up this structure, an authority structure, to ensure Levite provision. He acts practically with these systems, with these procedures. He's trying to minimise the risk of this kind of harm happening again. So, is the problem resolved? (laughs) Well, maybe for a while. We don't kind of get Nehemiah chapter 14, unfortunately. And maybe for some of the people. But we've already seen this, haven't we, through Ezra and Nehemiah. Time and again, sinful practice will return. The people, they might get lazy, they might unintentionally work around the rules in place, or they might be out to cause trouble, and sinful practice will step in. The reality is, and I think Nehemiah knows this, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. So what's the point? What is the point of all Nehemiah's hard work, you know, these preventative laws, that's really what they are, that he's putting in place? Is Is there any point? And this is the question I asked at the start. Is there a value... Is there any value to these preventative laws? Given what we know of of people's tendency to sin, even our own tendency to sin at times, why do we bother with these things? Why do we even think about preventative laws? I think there is a point. Despite the persistence of sin, what Nehemiah does in these chapters, it's godly, it's faithful, and he should be commended for it. And I think it's actually because of our propensity to sin, our tendency to disobey God in lots of areas, We need these preventative laws. In Nehemiah's context, in our legal system, in our churches, and even in our own lives. And I think there's a few ways they're effective. Here's just a few that I could think of. They temper our excesses and they they reduce harm. Speeding laws, gun access laws, they're good examples of this. If someone is absolutely set on causing havoc, limiting their access to powerful weapons, it can reduce the harm caused. If someone's a reckless driver, speed limits even just the fear of getting a fine, might reduce the speed at which a crash takes place or the likelihood at which it does. 
they curb our excesses. Secondly, and this one's probably more for us as believers, they give us a chance to pause and repent, especially if we're wrestling with a sinful tendency in our lives. Barriers and good structures, they can slow us down. One example that I've come across a few times of this is for people for whom online pornography is an issue. Uh, I've counselled a number of young men on this issue and there's all sorts of things available, internet filters and, and website blockers that can be installed. And many young Christian guys that I've spoken to about this, they want to stop. They do. That's their heart's desire is to see a change, but it's hard. And look, some of them even admit, you know, maybe I could put some things in place, some, some blockers and things, but they, they, they can find a way around it. But even then, the extra steps needed, the complication of doing so, every barrier slows us down, gives us a chance to stop and think, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. And a chance to turn back to God and to avoid, uh, avoid the sinful practice. That's another benefit, I think, in preventative laws. And thirdly, and this might be the best one of all, they make us accountable to others. Rules about multiple signatories on accounts, that makes us accountable to someone else. We can't just embezzle funds. Rules about multiple adults doing work with children in our children's ministry. These all mean that someone is accountable to someone else and slows down the possibility of any harm taking place. They can limit opportunities for harm when we're accountable to each other. Preventative laws, I think, are a good thing. They're a good thing in Nehemiah's day. They are helpful in our own nation, in our churches, and when we wisely set up some systems for ourselves, because we know our own weaknesses, they can be really helpful too. But, <laughs> even so, despite their benefit, and I do think they're beneficial, I want to be clear. These laws and structures do not deal with the problem of sin. Let's be clear about that. And this is what makes reading Nehemiah just that bit heartbreaking, I think. Just that little bit deflating when you get to the end of it. He's dealing with sin, issue after issue, sin after sin. He's, it's like he's plugging the damn walls here. This behavior, that behavior. And yet we know it's going to return. There'll be a point where this happens again. And I wonder if this is why he doesn't finish with that celebration of the walls, the dedication of the walls. He's a realist. He wants us to see reality as it was back in his day. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He shows us these challenges that keep coming up. His structures, his rules, they are great. They're wise, they're godly, they should be commended. But I think even he knows sin will be back. So is that where we end? Do we end with this kind of uh, deflated kind of realism? Could there be a way through? The good news is, the message of grace is there is a way through. There is a way to the end of sin, and it is through God alone. I want to look at this very briefly in a couple of quick ways. Firstly, when you think of persistent sin in your life, you think, can this be stopped? Can we change our behavior? You want to. You want to see a change, but we struggle. A couple of months ago, I preached on the Holy Spirit, and I talked about transformation by the Spirit. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Paul encourages us to walk by the Spirit. Allow God's Spirit to guide and direct our lives. This is the way to change. This is how we can resist the persistent return of sinful desire. By the power of God's Spirit. God gives us his spirit with this in mind to empower us to make wise choices, to say no to unwise behavior. This is the deep change we all need. 
This is how we can really change. And I want to flag, I remember flagging it in the message uh, when I spoke on this, this is gradual. It's a gradual thing. We shouldn't expect change to be instant and complete. And we shouldn't, shouldn't expect sin to never be an issue again in our lives. But there can be change. There can be improvement as God changes us inwardly from our hearts as we trust in the power of his spirit. But there's a second aspect to this, more than just our persistent sin. It's the consequences of sin. See, sin or ignoring God or or disregarding God in the world, disregarding God's call in our lives, has an eternal consequence. It's not just harmful to others and ourselves, which it is, but this is the bigger problem. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans. He writes, for the wages of sin is death. That is the result, the outcome, the the earnings, if you will, of sin, of, of ignoring God, is ultimately death. Natural death, but also for those separated from God, a final separation. And God's people knew this, even in Nehemiah's day. I mean, Nehemiah, I think, it seems like he's got the eternal consequences of sin top of his mind, even as he's writing chapter 13. Four times he calls on God, remember me. He says each time he deals wisely with some issue, he says, God, remember me. Remember the good thing I did. This is one example. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. He calls on God to remember his good deeds and be merciful. This should feel, it might feel, a little strange to us. This call, this almost anxious call for God to remember his good deeds. Because we don't usually do this. There's a a slight measure of anxiety almost, a nervousness in Nehemiah's language here. An uncertainty, maybe, about his eternal future. He's constantly petitioning God. Remember my good deeds, Lord, and grant me life, grant me mercy. I don't think this is a sign of weak faith in Nehemiah, but it's a sign of Old Testament faith. There is a difference for us, and the difference is because of what Jesus has done. Let me finish with that verse from Romans. You see the three dots there? I actually cut it short. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God sent his son who came and lived and died on a Roman cross, just like the one behind me, to take on himself the consequence of sin, the wages of sin, which is death itself. And Jesus did this in our place so that we can avoid the consequences of sin and instead have eternal life. Life with God, or as we read there in Romans 6, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This means we don't have to be anxious about the future, like Nehemiah seemed to be. We don't have to keep on calling on God to remember our good deeds, remember every little good thing we've done, because our eternal life, our hope with God is secure, not through our good deeds, but through Jesus' sacrifice. And today we have a wonderful opportunity to, again, remember the sacrifice of Jesus and that wonderful assurance of life we have as we celebrate communion together. When we gather for communion, we're actually reenacting that last meal that Jesus shared with his followers before he died. At that meal, Jesus used the bread and the cup to speak powerfully of his own body and blood. As he gave the bread and cup to his followers, he said, this is what I'm about to do. With my own life, I will give up my life freely for you 
so you can avoid those eternal consequences of sin, so that God's right judgment and all those things God calls us to avoid, all those things we wrestle with, God's judgment for that would not fall on us, but would actually fall on his son, Jesus. And we can be forgiven and have eternal life. Let me pray and let me thank God for his mercy and his love. Lord God, we come before you today aware of our own weaknesses and shortfallings. Lord, we know that we fail to love you with our whole heart. We fail to love our neighbours as ourselves. Lord, there are areas in each of our lives where we wrestle. We wrestle with being obedient to you, trusting in you fully, knowing that your way is the best way. Lord, we are sorry. Lord, we want to be different. We want to change. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit in our lives that can empower us to say no to unwise decisions and to follow you more closely. Thank you, Lord, for your Spirit. And Lord, thank you so much for your sacrifice for us, which deals with the eternal consequences of sin. Lord, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in an uncertainty or an anxiety like we might hear with Nehemiah. But we can be confident that our life is safe with you, not because of our good deeds, but because of your love and sacrifice for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we come to communion, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the